0: book three prologue of the black star passes by john campbell this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by kirk Ziegler. taj lamer gazed steadily down at the vast dim bulk of the ancient city spread out beneath him in the feeble light of stars its mighty masses of upflung metal buildings loomed strangely like the shells of some vast race of crustacea long extinct slowly he turned gazing now out across the great plaza, where rested long rows of slender yet mighty ships. Thoughtfully he stared at their dim, half-seen shapes. Taj Lamor was not human. Though he was humanoid, Earth had never seen creatures just like him. His seven-foot-high figure seemed a bit ungainly by terrestrial standards, and his strangely white, hairless flesh, suggested unbaked dough, somehow gave the impression of near-transparency his eyes were disproportionately large and the black disk of pupil in the white corneas was intensified by contrast yet perhaps his race better deserved the designation homo sapiens than terrestrians do for it was wise with the accumulated wisdom of uncounted eons he turned to the other man in the high cylindrical dimly lit tower room overlooking the dark metropolis a man far older than Taj Lamer, with his narrow shoulders bent and his features grayed with his years. His single, short, tight-fitting garment of black plastic marked him as one of the elders. The voice of Taj Lamer was vibrant with feeling. Tordos Gar. At last we are ready to seek a new son. Life for our race. A quiet, patient, imperturbable smile appeared on the elder's face and the heavy lids closed over his great eyes. Yes, he said sadly. But at what cost in tranquility? The discord. The unrest. The awakening of unnatural ambitions. A dreadful price to pay for a questionable gain. Too great a price, I think. His eyes opened, and he raised a thin hand to check the younger man's protest. I know, I know. In this we do not see as one. Yet perhaps some day you will learn, even as I have, that to rest is better than to engage in an endless struggle. Suns and planets die. Why should races seek to escape the inevitable?" Tordosgar turned slowly away and gazed fixedly into the night sky. Taj Lamer checked an impatient retort and sighed resignedly. It was this attitude that had made his task so difficult—decadence a race on ages-long decline from vast heights of philosophical and scientific learning. Their last external enemy had been defeated millennia in the past, and though easy forgetfulness and lack of strife, ambition died. Adventure had become a meaningless word. Strangely, during the last century a few men had felt stirrings of long-buried emotion, of ambition, of a craving for adventure. These were throwbacks to those ancestors of the race whose science had built their world. These men, a comparative handful, had been drawn to each other by the unnatural ferment within them, and Taj Lamer had become their leader. They had begun a mighty struggle against the inertia of ages of slow decay, had begun a search for the lost secrets of a hundred-million-year-old science. Taj Lamer raised his eyes to the horizon. Through the leaping curve of the crystal-clear roof of their world glowed a blazing spot of yellow fire—a star, the brightest object in a sky whose sun had lost its light. A point of radiance that held the last hopes of an incredibly ancient race. The quiet voice of Tordosgar came through the semi-darkness of the room, a pensive, dreamlike quality in its tones. "'You, Taj Lamer, And those young men who have joined you in this futile expedition do not think deeply enough your vision is too narrow you lack perspective in your youth you cannot think on a cosmic scale he paused as though in thought and when he continued it seemed almost as though he were speaking to himself in the far dim past fifteen planets circled about a small red sun they were dead worlds or rather worlds that had not yet lived Perhaps a million years passed before there moved about on three of them the beginnings of life. Then a hundred million years passed, and those first, crawling protoplasmic masses had become animals and plants and intermediate growths, and they fought endlessly for survival. Then more millions of years passed, and there appeared a creature which slowly gained ascendancy over the other struggling life forms that fought for the warmth of rays of the hot, red sun. That sun had been old, even as the age of the star is counted, before its planets had been born, and many, many millions of years had passed before those planets cooled, and then more aeons sped by before life appeared. Now, as life slowly forced its way upward, that sun was nearly burned out. The animals fought, and bathed in the luxury of its rays, for many millennia were required to produce any noticeable change in its life-giving radiations. At last, one animal gained ascendancy—our race. But though one species now ruled, there was no peace. Age followed age, while semi-barbaric peoples fought among themselves. But even as they fought, they learned. They moved from caves into structures of wood and stone. And engineering had its beginnings. With the buildings came little chemical engines to destroy them. Warfare was developing. Then came the first, crude flying machines, using clumsy, inefficient engines, chemical engines, engines so crude that no one could watch the flow of their fuel. One part in one hundred thousand million of the energy of their propellants they released to run engines, and they carried fuel in such vast quantities that they staggered under its load as they left the ground. And warfare became worldwide. After flight came other machines and other ages. Other scientists began to have visions of the realms beyond, and they sought to tap the vast reservoirs of nature's energies, the energies of matter. Other ages saw it done. A few thousand years later there passed out into space a machine that forced its way across the void to another planet, and the races of the three living worlds became as one. But there was no peace. Swiftly now, science grew upon itself. Building with ever faster steps, like a crystal which once started, forms with incalculable speed. And while that science grew swiftly greater, other changes took place. Changes in our universe itself. Ten million years passed before the first of those changes became important. But slowly, steadily, our atmosphere was drifting into space. Through ages this gradually became apparent. Our worlds were losing their air and their water. One planet, less favored than another, fought for its life, and space itself was ablaze with the struggles of war for survival. Again science helped us. Thousands of years before, men had learned how to change the mass of matter into energy, but now at last the process was reversed, and those ancestors of ours could change energy into matter, any kind of matter they wished. Rock they took, and changed it into energy. Then that energy they transmuted to air, to water, to the necessary metals. Their planets took a new lease of life. But even this could not continue forever. They must stop that loss of air. The process they had developed for reformation of matter admitted of a new use. creation. They were now able to make new elements, elements that had never existed in nature. They designed atoms as long before their fathers had designed molecules. At last their problem was solved. They made a new form of matter that was clearer than any crystal, and yet stronger and tougher than any metal known. Since it held out none of the sun's radiations, they could roof their worlds with it and keep their air within. This was a task that could not be done in a year, nor a decade, but all the time stretched out unending before them. One by one, the three planets became tremendous roofed-in cities. Only their vast powers, their mighty machines made the task possible, but it was done. The droning voice of Tordos Gar ceased. Taj Lamer, who had listened with a mixture of amusement and impatience to the recital of a history he knew as well as the aged, garrulous narrator, waited out of the inborn respect which every man held for the elders. At length he exclaimed I see no point. But you will when I finish, or at least I hope you will. Tordor Skar's words and tone were gently reapproving. He continued quietly. Slowly the ages drifted on, each marked by greater and greater triumphs of science. But again and again there were wars. Some there were in the population of a world was halved. And all space for a billion miles about was a vast cauldron of incandescent energy in which tremendous fleets of spaceships swirled and fused like ingredients in a cosmic brew. Forces were loosened on the three planets that sent even their mighty masses reeling drunkenly out of their orbits, and space itself seemed to be torn by the awful play of energies. Always peace followed—a futile peace. A few brief centuries or a few millennia, and again a war would flame. It would end, and life would continue. But slowly there crept into the struggle a new factor—a darkening cloud. A change that came so gradually that only the records of instruments made during the period of a thousand years could show it. Our sun had changed from a bright red to a deep, sullen crimson, and ever less and less heat poured from it. It was waning. As the fires of life died down, the people of the three worlds joined in a conflict with a common menace, death from the creeping cold of space. There was no need for great haste a sun dies slowly. Our ancestors laid their plans and carried them out. The fifteen worlds were encased in shells of crystal. Those that had no atmosphere were given one. Mighty heating plants were built. Furnaces that burned matter. Designed to warm a world. At last a state of stability had been reached. For never could conditions change, it seemed. All external heat and light came from far-off stars the thousands of millions of sons that would never fail. Under stress of the great change, one scarcely noticed, yet almost incredible transformation had occurred. We had learned to live with each other. We had learned to think and enjoy thinking. As a species, we had passed from youth into maturity. Advancement did not stop. We went on steadily toward a goal of all knowledge. At first, There was an underlying hope that we might some day, somehow, escape from these darkened artificial worlds of ours. But with the passing centuries this grew very dim and at length was forgotten. Gradually, as the millennia passed, much ancient knowledge was also forgotten. It was not needed. The world was unchanging. There was no strife, and no need of strife. The fifteen worlds were warm and pleasant and safe without fully realizing it we had entered a period of rest and so the ages passed and there were museums and libraries and laboratories and the machines of our ancestors did all necessary work so it was until less than a generation ago our long lives were present and death when it came was asleep and then taj lamor interrupted a sharp edge of impatience in his tone Some of us have awakened from our stupor." The elder sighed resignedly. "'You cannot see. You cannot see. You would start that struggle all over again.' His voice continued in what Taj Lamer thought of as a senile drone, but the younger man paid scant attention. His eyes and thoughts were centered on that brilliant yellow star, the brightest object in the heavens. It was that star noticeably brighter within a few centuries that had awakened a few men from their mental slumbers. They were throwbacks, men who had the divine gift of curiosity, and had sparked, by their will to know, they had gone to the museums and looked carefully at the ancient directions for the use of the telescope. The mighty electrified, amplified vision machine had gazed through it. They had seen a great sun that seemed to fill all the field of the apparatus with blazing fire a sun to envy further observation had revealed that there circled about the sun a series of planets five definitely two more probably and possibly two others taj lamor had been with that group a young man then scarcely more than forty but they had found in him a leader and they had followed him as he set about his investigation of the ancient books on astronomy How many, many hours had he studied those ancient works! How many times had he despaired of ever learning their truths, and gone out onto the roof of the museum to stand in silent thought, looking out across the awful void to the steady flame of the yellow star. Then quietly he had returned to his self-set task. With him as their teachers, others had learned, and before he was seventy there were many men who had become true scientists, astronomers. There was much of the ancient knowledge that these men could not understand, for the science of a million centuries is not to be learned in a few brief decades, but they mastered a vast amount of the forgotten lore. They knew now that the young, live sun out there in space was speeding toward them, their combined velocities equaling more than one hundred miles each second, and they knew that there were not seven, but nine planets circling about that sun. There were other facts they discovered. They found that the new sun was far larger than theirs had ever been. Indeed, it was a sun well above average size and brilliance. There were planets, a hot sun, a home. Could they get there? When their ancestors had tried to solve the problem of escape, they had concentrated their work on the problem of going at speeds greater than that of light. This should be an impossibility, but the fact that the ancients had tried it Seemed proof enough to their descendants that it was possible, at least in theory. In the distant past, they had needed speeds exceeding that of light, for they must travel light years. But now this sun was coming toward them, and already was less than two hundred and fifty billion miles away. They would pass that other star in about seventy years. That was scarcely more than a third of a man's lifetime. They could make the journey with conceivable speeds but in that brief period they must prepare to move. The swift agitation for action had met with terrific resistance. They were satisfied. Why move? But while some men had devoted their time to arousing the people to help, others had begun doing work that had not been done for a long, long time. The laboratories were reopened. The shops began humming again. They were making things that were new once more, not merely copying old designs. Their search had been divided into sections, search for weapons with which to defend themselves in case they were attacked, and search for the basic truths underlying the operation of their spaceships. They had machines which they could imitate, but they did not understand them. Success had been theirs on these quests. The third section had been less successful. They had also been searching for secrets of the apparatus their forefathers had used to swing the planets into their orbits, to move worlds about at will. They had wanted to be able to take not only their spaceships, but their planets as well, when they went to settle on these other worlds and in this other solar system. But the search for this secret had remained unrewarded. The secret of the spaceships they learned readily, and Taj Lamer had designed these mighty ships below there with that knowledge. Their search for weapons had been satisfied. They had found one weapon, one of the deadliest that their ancestors had ever invented. But the one secret in which they were most interested, the mighty force barrage that could swing a world in its flight through space, was lost. They could not find it. They knew the principles of the driving apparatus of their ships, and it would seem but a matter of enlargement to drive a planet as a ship. But they knew this was impossible. The terrific forces needed would easily be produced by their apparatus, but there was no way to apply them to a world. If applied in any spot, the planet would be torn asunder by the incalculable strain. They must apply the force equally to the entire planet. Their problem was one of application of power the rotation of the planet made it impossible to use a series of driving apparatus even could these be anchored but again the sheer immensity of the task made it impossible taj lamor glanced down again at the great ships in the plaza below their mighty bulks seemed to dwarf even the huge buildings about them yet these ships were his for he had learned their secrets and designed them and now he was to command them as they flew out across space in that flight to the distant star. he turned briefly to the elder, Totaskar. soon we will leave, he said, a faint edge of triumph in his voice. We will prove that our way is right. The old man shook his head. You will learn, he began, but Taj Lammer didn't want to hear. He turned, passed through a doorway, and stepped into a little torpedo-shaped car that rested on the metal roof behind him. A moment later the little ship rose, then slanted smoothly down over the edge of the roof, straight for the largest of the ships below. This was the flagship. Nearly a hundred feet greater was its diameter, and its mile, a quarter length of gleaming metal hull, gave it nearly three hundred feet greater length than that of the ships of the line. This expedition was an expedition of exploration. They were prepared to meet any conditions on those other worlds. No atmosphere, no water, no heat, or even an atmosphere of poisonous gases they could rectify, for their transmutation apparatus would permit them to change those gases or modify them. They knew well how to supply heat, but they knew too that that sun would warm some of its planets sufficiently for their purposes. Taj Lamer sent his little machine darting through the great airlock in the side of the gigantic interstellar ship and lowered it gently to the floor. A man stepped forward, opened the door for the leader, saluting him briskly as he stepped out. Then the car was run swiftly aside, to be placed with thousands of others like it. Each of these cars was to be used by a separate investigator when they reached those other worlds, and there were men aboard who would use them. Taj Lamer made his way to a door on the side of the great metal tube that threaded the length of the huge ship. Opening the door, he sat down in another little car that shot swiftly forward as the double door shut softly, with a low hiss of escaping air. For moments the car sped through the tube, then gently it slowed and came to rest opposite another door. Again came the hissing of gas as the twin doors opened, and Taj Lamer stepped out now well up in the nose of the cruiser. As he stepped out of the car, the outer and inner doors closed, and ready now for other calls. The car remained at this station. On a ship so long, some means of communication faster than walking was essential. This little pneumatic railway was the solution. As Taj Lamer stepped out of the tube, a half a dozen men, who had been talking among themselves, snapped quickly to attention. Following the plans of the long-gone armies of their ancestors, the men of the expedition had been trained to strict discipline, and Taj Lamer was their technical leader, and the nominal commander-in-chief, although another man, Cornel Sorrel, was their actual commander. Taj Lamer proceeded at once to the staff cabin in the very nose of the great ship. Just above him there was another room, walled on all sides by that clear, glass-like material the control cabin. Here sat the pilot, directing the motions of the mighty ship of space. Taj Lamer pushed a small button on his desk, and in a moment a gray disk before him glowed dimly, then flashed to life and full natural color, as though looking through a glass porthole. Taj Lamer saw the interior of the communications room. The communications officer was gazing at a similar disk in which Taj Lamer's features appeared. "'Have they reported from Omer, Lorsan, and Throlus Yet, Morlas Tal?' asked the commander. "'They are reporting now, Taj Lamer, and we will be ready within two and one-half minutes. The plans are as before. We are to proceed directly toward the yellow star. Meeting at point 71. The plans are as before. Start when ready.' The disk faded. The colors died, and it was gray again. Taj Lamer pulled another small lever on the panel before him, and the disk changed, glowed and was steady. And now he saw the preparations for departure, as from an eye on top of the great ship. Men streamed swiftly in ordered columns all about and into the huge vessels. In an incredibly short time they were in, and the great doors closed behind them, suddenly there came a low, dull hum through the disk, and the sound mounted quickly, till all the world seemed humming to that dull note—the warning. Abruptly, the city around him seemed to blaze in a riot of colored light. The mighty towering hulks of huge metal buildings were polished and bright, and now, as the millions of lights, every color of the spectrum, flashed all over the city from small machines in the air. On the ground, in windows, the great metal walls glistening with a riot of flowing color. Then there was a trembling through all the frame of the mighty ship. In a moment it was gone and the titanic mass of glistening metal rose smoothly, quickly, to the great roof of their world above them. On an even keel it climbed straight up, then suddenly it leapt forward, like some great bird of prey sighting its victim. The ground beneath sped swiftly away, and behind it there came a long line of ships, quickly finding their position in the formation. They were heading toward the giant airlock that would let them out into space. There was but one lock large enough to permit so huge a ship to pass out, and they must circle half their world to reach it. On three other worlds there were other giant ships, racing thus to meet beyond their solar system. There were fifty ships coming from each planet, two hundred mighty ships in all made up this armada of space, two hundred gargantuan interstellar cruisers. One by one the great ships passed through the airlock and out into space. Here they quickly reformed as they moved off together, each ship falling into place in the mighty cone formation, with the flagship of Taj Lamer at the head. On they rushed through space, their speed ever mounting. Suddenly there seemed to leap out of nowhere another mass of shining machines that flew swiftly beside them. Like some strange shining ghosts, these ships seemed to materialize instantly beside and behind their fleet. They fell quickly in with their allotted position behind the flagship's squadron. One, two more fleets appeared thus, suddenly in the dark, and together the ships were flashing on through space to their goal of the glowing fire ahead. Hour after hour, day after day, the ships flashed on through the awful void, the utter silence relieved by the communications between themselves and the slowly weakening communications of the far-off home planets. But as those signals from home grew steadily weaker, the sun before them grew steadily larger. At last the men began to feel the heat of those rays, to realize the energy that that mighty sea of flame poured forth into space, and steadily they watched it grow nearer. Then came a day when they could make out clearly the dim bulk of a planet before them, and for long hours they slowed down the flying speed of the ships. They had mapped the system they were approaching. There were nine planets of varying sizes, some on the near and some on the far side of the Sun. There were but three on the near side, one that seemed the outermost of the planets, about 35,000 miles in diameter, was directly in their path, while there were two more much nearer the Sun, about 100 million and 70 million miles distance from it, each about 7 to 8 thousand miles in diameter, but they were on opposite sides of the Sun. These more inviting and more accessible worlds were numbers 2 and 3 of the planetary system. It was decided to split the expedition into two parts. One part was to go to the planet 2, and the other to 3. Taj Lamer was to lead his group of a hundred ships to the nearest planet at once. In a very brief time, the great ships slanted down over what seemed to be a mighty globe of water. They were well in the northern hemisphere, and they had come near the planet first over a vast stretch of rolling ocean. The men had looked in wonder at such vast quantities of the fluid. To them it was a precious liquid, that must be made artificially, and was to be conserved. Yet here they saw such vast quantities of natural water as seemed impossible. Still their ancient books had told of such things, and of other strange things things that must have been wondrously beautiful, though they were so old now, these records, that they were regarded largely as myths. Yet here were the strange proofs. They saw great masses of fleecy water vapor, huge billowing things that seemed solid, but were blown lightly in the wind, and natural air. The atmosphere extended for hundreds of miles off into space. And now, as they came closer to the surface of this world, the air was dense, and the sky above them was a beautiful blue, not black, even where there were stars. The great sun, so brilliantly incandescent when seen from space, and now a glowing globe of reddish-yellow. As they came near land, they looked in wonder at these mighty masses of rock and soil that threw their shaggy heads high above the surrounding terrain huge masses that rose high like waves in the water, till they towered in solemn grandeur miles into the air. What a sight for these men of a world so old that age-long erosion had washed away the last traces of hills and filled all of the valleys. In awe they looked down at the mighty rock masses as they swung low over the mountains, gazing in wonder at the green masses of the strange vegetation. Strange indeed! for they had for uncounted ages had only grown mushroom-like cellulose products, and these mainly for ornament, for all their food was artificially made in huge factories. Then they came over a little mountain lake, a body of water scarcely large enough to berth one of their huge ships, but high in the air of the mountains fed by the melting eternal snows. It was a magnificent sapphire in a setting green as emerald, a sparkling lake of clear water deep as the sea high in a cleft in the mountains in wonder the men looked down at these strange sights what a marvelous home steadily the great machines proceeded and at last the end of the giant mountain was reached and they came to a great plain but that plain was strangely marked off with squares as regularly as though plotted with a draftsman's square This world must be inhabited by intelligent beings. Suddenly Taj Lamer saw strange specks off in the horizon to the south, specks that seemed to grow in size with terrific velocity. These must be ships, the ships of these people, coming to defend their home. The strangely pallid face of Taj Lamer tightened into lines of grim resolution. This was a moment he had foreseen and had dreaded. Was he to withdraw and leave these people unmolested? Or was he to stand and fight for this world, this wonderfully beautiful home, a home that his race could live in for millions of years to come? He had debated this question many times before in his mind, and he had decided there would never, never be another chance for his people to gain a new home. They must fight. Swiftly he gave his orders. If resistance came, if an attack were made. They were to fight back at once, with every weapon at their disposal. The stranger's ships had grown swiftly larger to the eye, but still, though near now, they seemed too small to be dangerous. These giant interstellar cruisers were certainly invulnerable to ships so small. Their mere size would give them protection. These ships were scarcely as long as the diameter of the smaller of the interstellar ships, a bare two hundred and fifty feet for the largest the interstellar cruisers halted in their course and waited for the little ships to approach they were fast for they drew alongside quickly and raced to the front of the flagship there was one small one that was painted white and on it there was a large white banner flapping in the wind of its passage the rest of the ships drew off as this came forward and stopped hanging motionless before the control room of the giant machine there were men inside three strange men short and oddly pink-skinned but they were gesturing now motioning that the giant machine settle to the ground beneath taj lamor was considering whether or not to thus parley with the strangers when suddenly there leaped from the white craft a beam of clear white a beam that was directed toward the ground then swung up toward the great cruiser in a swift arc as one a dozen swift beams of pale red flared out from the giant and bathed the pigamy craft. As they reached it, the white ray that had been sweeping up suddenly vanished, and for an instant the ship hung poised in the air, then it began to swing crazily. Like the pendulum of a clock swung completely over, and with a sickening lurch sped swiftly for the plane nearly five miles below. In moments there came a brief flare. Then there remained only a little crater in the soft soil. But the red beams had not stopped with the little ship. They had darted out to the other machines, trying to reach them before they could bring those strange white rays into play. The cruisers obviously must win, for they carried dozens of projectors, and they might be damaged, their flight delayed. But they must defeat those strangers quickly. The rays of Taj Lamer's ship lashed out swiftly. But almost before they had started, all the other ships, a full hundred, were in action, and the flagship was darting swiftly up, away from the battle. Below those pale red rays were taking swift toll of the little ships, and nearly twenty of them rolled suddenly over, and dashed to destruction far below. But now the little ships were in swift-darting motion. Because of their small size, they were able to avoid the rays of the larger interstellar cruisers, and as their torpedo-shaped hulls flashed about with bewildering speed, they began to fight back. They had been taken utterly by surprise, but now they went into action with an abandon and swiftness that took the initiative away from the gigantic interstellar liners. There were in a dozen places at once dodging and twisting, unharmed, out of the way of the deadly red beams, and were as hard to hit as so many dancing feathers suspended over an air-jet. And if the pilots were skillful in avoiding enemy rays, their raymen were as accurate in placing theirs. But then, with a target of such vast size, not so much skill was necessary. These smaller vessels were the ships of Earth. The people of the Dark Star had entered the Solar System quite unannounced, except that they had been seen in passing the orbit of Mars, for a ship had been out there in space, moving steadily out toward Neptune, and the great interstellar cruisers, flashing in across space, away from that frigid planet, had not seen the tiny wanderer. But he had seen those mighty hulks, and he had sent his message of danger out on the ether, warning the men of Earth. They had relayed it to Venus and the ships that had gone there had received an equally warm reception, and even now were finding their time fully occupied by trying to beat off the interplanetary patrol. The battle ended as swiftly as it began, for Taj Lamer, in his machine high above, saw that they were outclassed, and ordered them to withdraw at once. Scarcely ten minutes had lapsed, yet they had lost twenty-two of their giant ships. The expedition that had gone to Venus reported a similarly active greeting. It was decided at once that they should proceed cautiously to the other planets, to determine which were inhabited and which were not, and to determine the chemical and physical conditions on each. The ships formed again out in space, on the other side of the Sun, however, and started at once in compact formation for Mercury. Their observations were completed without further mishap. And they set out for their distant home, their number depleted by forty-one ships, for nineteen had fallen on Venus. End of prologue. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah. Voiceover Dash Solutions dot com.